welcome back to Behind Our Door. Hi, Hi. Nancy. Hi, Julie. Um, Still thinking about last week I with know. our interview with Phil Andrew. I know. Um, I can't seem to get it out of my brain. Me either. You know, it's interesting that our next guest that we're going to have on the po- one of our next guests, I'm not, we're not sure when it will drop, but um, is also a survivor of a major tragic incident. They're so inspirational. They're, it's it's so um, it's such a lesson learned to see recovery of these strong individuals. I mean, I, I feel like you don't know the details of recovery until you hear their story and what they're doing. And uh, if, if anyone hasn't heard the Phil Andrew podcast, um, take a his, listen. His his story is remarkable in every sense of the word. And I have a feeling our one today will be just equal, as great. equally as, uh, as you say, inspiring. Yeah. And for anyone listening to this, Phil Andrew was the victim of a shooting in Wilmette, Illinois, right, Wilmette? In 1988. In 1988. And it's categorized as one of the first elementary school shootings. And although he wasn't a child at the school, right. the offender broke into his house and um, held them hostage. So it's quite a remarkable story on how he took that pain and turned it into power, right? Power and how he changed his life for, you know, for the better, helping people. And Mm -hmm. uh, there's always some sort of silver lining, even through these horrific, horrific incidents. Yeah, and our next guest is going to have a powerful story also and. She is a victim of 9-11. So for anyone listening, we're just going to do a little trigger warning. Um, We are very graphic about the details of that day, and we just want to make sure that if it's something that will trigger you, it may not be something that you want to listen to. Today we have a really interesting guest, Kayla Bergeron, that you are going to want to hear A to Z, everything she has to say. On September 11, 2001, Kayla Bergeron, Director of Public Affairs for the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, was working on the 68th floor of the North Tower of the World Trade Center when terrorists hit. She will describe her harrowing story of survival that led her to a shift in her career, training with Homeland Security and FEMA's Incident Command Systems. As well, Kayla is a graduate of Forsyth County, Georgia's Care Court Program for Dual Diagnosis, a program she credits for saving her life. Now Program Director for the Connection Forsyth, a recovery program, and much work in peer engagement, and of course, speaking about her 9-11 experience and journey of recovery, Kayla is, to say the least, an important mental health advocate and spokesperson in ending the stigma. Welcome, Kayla. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Welcome, Kayla. Thank you, Julian. Thank you, Nancy. Um, I am so thankful for this opportunity. Well, we're thrilled to have you here. Um, why don't you start off telling your story? I mean, I, I feel like it's it's just uh, always something else when somebody has survived 9-11. I can't, can't even fathom, but that's what we'd like to hear if you if you want to start off with sure. that. Sure. On September 10th, 2001, I was at JFK Airport with my boss, Neil Levin, who was the executive director of the Port Authority. We were there with an editorial writer 
for the New York Times talking about the redevelopment of JFK. He gave me a ride back into the city, dropped me off in my apartment. I said, oh, I don't know if I want to work out or if I'll just chill inside. He said, work out. (laughs) That's the last time. That's the last time I saw him. Uh, He, um, well, let me just start the next day. I'm at my desk on the 68th floor preparing for a meeting with he and outside, actually website consultants. And I'm at my desk getting ready. And uh, all of a sudden, the building lurches forward about 10 feet. But then it comes back into place. And then as I looked out the window, it was as if someone on the upper floor, the 107th floor, was cleaning out the desk. There was paper flying everywhere. And then I started to see shards of glass. I didn't know exactly what had happened. I thought maybe a small plane had veered off course. So I called both governor's offices since the Port Authority is a bi-state agency. And I said, something is happening. I think it's a small plane, but I just wanted to give you a heads up. So I called. My boss lived in the city, and he would work very late hours. I couldn't get him on the cell, so I reached his wife, who said, he's at Windows of the World. Windows of the World is on the 107th floor. So so, um, at my desk, someone called, and they said, a small plane, we believe a small plane hit the tower. So I go into my work mode. I had the Blackberries. That was before the, the smartphones. And mm-hmm. I'm texting staff. I sent senior staff a note saying, I'm going to set up a command center at the Marriott. The Marriott was on the, the plaza of the World Trade Center. And that's where they were set up for the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. I te- Sent my notes to my staff, say, meet there. I had staff who was with me on the floor. I sent them, I said, pads, pencils, business continuity plan, bring it all. And then finally, a security guard came into my office and said, your life is in danger. You got to evacuate now. I said, give me a few minutes to turn off my computer. Oh, God. Grab my God. So as I'm on the way out, I walked the floor because I had a woman who, who worked in my department. Um, she was physically challenged, but she had been taken out, so she was okay. Oh, God. So starting to go down the stairs, I'm texting saying, okay, you at the Marriott? You at the Marriott? Um, they had left, say, 35 minutes ahead of me, and there were only 10 flights, 10 flights ahead of me, even though they had a head start. So I thought that was a little bit unusual, wow. but, but the, as we were evacuating, it was very orderly because we had done so many drills. And after the 1993 bombing, they put tape, colored tape that glowed in the dark on the floor. So all we had to do was follow the tape. And as policemen came down with people in need and firemen went up with their heavy equipment, all we had to do was step aside. So everything is orderly. Can senior staff going to the Marriott. Everything is fine. I see a colleague from aviation department, and um, we're walking along, and all of a sudden I get a note from a friend that says, terrorists attacked the World Trade Center. 
So I'm thinking to myself, hmm, I can't cause any panic. So I pulled my friend aside. So I'm going to show you something. Just don't react. I showed it to her. We looked at each other and I said, let's get this line moving. Let's get this line moving. Yeah. So, so we're going down into about the sixth floor. The, the, the South Tower had collapsed. We knew it had to have been just by the, the sheer force of the earth shaking. And our building twisted. The lights went out. And there were these big pipes of water that were used. The water was used to cool the chillers for the air, con- air conditioning system. So we're in the dark. The stairwell's blocked. And here's this water coming and no options. So that's the moment you wonder when you meet your maker, how you're going to mm-hmm. act. Um, and I was calm. Mm. I mean, there was nothing I could do. So we're just kind of waiting. And all of a sudden, we hear a voice. Poor Authority Police Officer David Lim. He says, come up, come up. But the last thing we wanted to do was go up because we knew the building was going to come down based mm-hmm. upon the other one. But there was no other way out. And so... He takes us through another stairwell. The Port Authority built the World Trade Center, so they knew the ins and outs. So we went to stairwell B, and we're coming down, and the water there is raging too. And so we took our belts off, and we 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 uh, it used it like a rope for the person in front of us, and they were only allowed two two or three out of at a time. So we're walking. There's glass everywhere, women taking off their shoes and stuff. And the group I was with, three or four people, um, we got kind of lost. Um, we we were in this room. As we could see the white, I'm thinking, we're almost out of the building. Must have been clouds. Until we got there, it was, it turns out, the um, the plaza, the inside plaza of the World Trade Center on the West Side Highway but it was almost like a fresh snowstorm. The doors were covered. The walls were covered. The floor was covered. The ceiling was covered. And um, it, it was surreal. So I'm with some people, and they're starting to scream. I said, don't scream because there's stuff coming down from above. I said, let's look for, for footprints. So after we find no footprints, I said, well, now it's time to scream. <laughs> so we started screaming. And then finally we saw this light and someone was on a bullhorn and said, uh, if you can see the light, follow the light. So we followed the light uh, and it took us out through the side of the World Trade Center and we walked along the overhang of the buildings and to see what was there. um, It's not anything you would anticipate seeing in the United States ever. Um, The destruction. But anyway, we kept walking, and then I, we go down these stairs, which in the museum now are known as the Freedom Stairs. They're 30 tons of concrete, but they were our way to street level. And we were at the corner of Vesey and Church Street. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to take a breath. Now, here's me with my little suit, my little skirt, my pumps. So I'm starting to breathe, think we're out of harm's way. And all of a sudden, a police officer says, run. And I'm thinking, I spent all this time in the tower. I'm not running until I turn around and I see this gigantic black plume. 
engulfing lower Manhattan. And uh, I ran as fast as I could, 16 blocks. And as the boom approached, I dove under a car. And uh, once that sort of lifted, um, I texted my staff and said, we're not staying in Manhattan. We're going to go just across the Holland Tunnel to our police headquarters in Jersey City. So I waved down a poor authority police officer at the Holland Tunnel. And one by one, staff started showing up at our police headquarters. I'm like, where is Fred Marone, the superintendent of police? Where is this one? Where is this one? Well, it turns out the leadership of the Port Authority Police had been in a conference. And then when they found out New 11 was on the 107th floor, they were trying to get to him. So 33 of the leaders of the Port Authority Police were gone. Jeez. So I saw our chief operating officer, Ernesto Butcher, come in just covered in soot. And um, that was a difficult moment because, and I carry grief still because I sent the senior staff to the Marriott and the, and the ceiling collapsed on them. Uh-huh. And um, so I kind of carried that for a while. But anyway, he says, Kayla, I need your help. So what do you need? Because here I am, I'm getting public information officers from the New York and New Jersey governor's offices. I know this is going to be a long thing. The human resources people haven't arrived. Um, and so we were there in the early the early minutes, I guess, you know, in terms of escape. And so he said, we need to figure out who's dead and who's alive. And, um, you know, that's something you never think about. And I'm trying to figure out how, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? And so I called a friend who was in another department. I didn't know where she was. I didn't know if she was in the building. So I called her home. This is an old friend. Um, I said, Norma, Kelly, you're alive. You're alive. I'm like, Norma, you're alive. You're alive. Turns out she was in the last path train from New Jersey to New York. And they stopped the train. So she came in. She was an excellent detailed person. And so I said, we have this conundrum. I need your help. And so started an Excel spreadsheet and we set up a phone number, two phone numbers and put it on a vanilla website. And the media was, was very helpful getting out the word. One, one phone number for a poor authority employees needing to know where to report, call this number. And as they called in, we put their name on there and start cheering. There was another phone number we set up for poor authority family members who hadn't heard from, from their loved ones call here. And that's what we did in the early hours. But meanwhile, just just waiting to see what was going to happen, um, we have a chair of the Port Authority who was coming to the scene in New Jersey. Uh, we had to coordinate with both New York and New Jersey offices. Um, we actually moved from the police headquarters to another Port Authority facility, another train facility, because they thought the police headquarters were too close to the Holland Tunnel and could have been a target. Mm-hmm. We moved to yet another place. Um, we set up these hunting phone lines. We all had our business continuity plan so we could operate anywhere. First thing I did was meet with the chief counsel in terms of what we could we could say because of the repercussions. 
We talked about the port, of, port authority of facilities, whether it was um, the major airports in and out of New York or um, the airports especially. We talked about whether they were open or closed. We wanted to be careful because we didn't want to step on the Joint Terrorism Task Force. Homeland Security didn't exist, um, but we had to just be careful in the early hours. So the first thing the lawyer tells me is that if we use the word terrorist attack, we have to use plural because of insurance proceeds. You want to oh. talk about, oh, and um, that was good advice because, you know, by the time it was litigated, if we would have said terrorist attack singular, we would only got paid for one of the buildings. Oh, so you want to talk about having the foresight? How yeah. crazy. Um, wow. So it, it was just crazy. Um, we worked and we worked and we worked for months. Um, I think I attended 33 funerals in total. The poor authority lost 73 employees. So we went from rescue to recovery to the 9-11 commission hearings, which were, were brutal for us because yeah. loved ones were pointing the finger at us and say, poor authority, you killed my son. Uh-huh. Poor authority, you killed my daughter. Um, and so that was rough. And then we went to the rebuilding. The path station between New York and New Jersey was restored within 18 months, on time and on budget, by the way. But in terms of what should be built on the site, you had, um, you know, New Yorkers, very yes. vocal. Mm-hmm. You had, even am- even among the family, there was no consensus. Build the towers. Don't re- build the towers. Don't put anything on the site. And so we had a very um, robust uh, public hearing schedule. I think we had 20 meetings in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. Um, and so we had a competition among architects from all over the world. And little by little, based upon the input from the public hearings, we whittled down, whittled down to what we have today. And I think it's a fantastic job. Yeah. And the memorial. Have you been to the memorial? I have. I yes. have. It's it's it just wherever you were on that day, it just puts you there. Um, and uh, I thought they did they just did a fabulous job capturing the reality of the day, but in a tasteful manner. Mm-hmm. So, again, just working, 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 and then a couple of years later, I was offered a job working in Florida. And what interested me was one warmer weather. <laughs> Uh, two, it was it was a lead agency restoring America's Everglades. So I was like, fantastic, fantastic. And so I, I left in November two thousand and six, and I, I was having a wonderful time because to see how you could use plants to clean up the water from all the phosphorus, it was a job of a lifetime, and um, everything going fine until the housing bust in 2011 and so because of the waning revenues the governor's office had to make cuts and our agency had 180 million dollars in cuts so pr marketing were the first victims at the same time uh, i had had a brother who was in hurricane katrina he died driving home uh, from work of a heart attack and my mom was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. So I'm laid off. All this stuff is happening. 
Um, and I guess that's when I started to drink and I didn't realize it. Um, I knew I had so much anxiety, uh, and I was, I was alone there, you know, in, in worry. And then I got a DUI and, um, not, not to cut you off on your story, but, um, do you think you had proper time to sit down, evaluate and really deal with the trauma that you had been through? No, um, actually, um, I was sexually abused as a kid. So until, I guess I looked at everything that the the job kept me busy, always the eye on the prize. And Mm -hmm. so when I was used to working at such a high speed Mm -hmm. and everything slowed down, that's when everything came up. Right. Yeah. Uh, That's when the problem started. Because you compartmentalize because that's what you're trained to do. And and exactly. the way and the, and the way you're describing this is barely taking a breath after this incredible experience to start to even think about anything. I mean, you went right into uh, you know what next, what next. So Florida is when you first started to fall apart when, I when you were to drink there. After everything, yes. Um, and I just thought maybe um, when I had the DUI, I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Of course. And meanwhile, I'm driving back and forth between West Palm Beach and Swanee, Georgia, to see my mother to try to maximize, maximize the time she had. And over the course of, I guess, five years or so, all my savings gone, my condo's gone. Wow. Uh, so when it rains, it pours. Yes. Uh, so after my mom died, I came to Georgia. I'm the only single one, so to stay with my dad. And that's what I did in 2016, I believe it was July. And in January of 2017, DUI number two. Wow. But that was a saving grace because um, that's where I got the diagnosis of the PTSD. 17 years later. Up until that point, did you even think you had PTSD? And did you ever go to no. therapy? Did you have any therapy? I and... tried some therapy, but the thought was that I had depression. Oh. So, and I figured, okay, job loss, my mom. Um, but it, because I wasn't at war, I guess you could consider that war, but because I wasn't a soldier fighting abroad, mm-hmm. it didn't occur to me. I wasn't a first responder. I didn't exactly fit in there. I wasn't a victim of domestic violence. And frankly, I was angry at myself because hopefully I have a little bit of intelligence on why I didn't see the signs or why didn't I see it applied to me. Um, you know, I don't know how I missed that. But how would you know unless you either, A, had someone you were very close to who were experiencing those symptoms, or B, had, you know, listened to a podcast like this or saw something on TV? How else would you know? And at that time, at that time, it seems like, yes, PTSD was, was talking about relative to vets and, um, you know, first responders. First responders. Yes. Yeah. You didn't, like you said, you didn't classify yourself as fitting that. Those roles, mm-hmm. even though you really did. Yeah. So in this little obscure program called the Forsyth County, Georgia Accountability Court, there's a program for dual diagnosis. I never heard of a court program that, that had that in that it was comprehensive. Yes, we had to go to court twice a month 
any day of the week. You were subject to drug screens, but you also had individual meetings with therapists. I had supervised medications, psychiatrists, and groups, DBT. Um, so I thought that was very comprehensive. And um, like I said, it was a changing point in my life. Like you th- said, that was actually a good thing. That second DOI kind of put you on your path to recovery. Exactly. And that's why I was angry at myself. Had I only known, I mean, my dad says if it was a skip, we could take a ride. But had I known the diagnosis, maybe I could have done something sooner, but I can't go back. Can't no. go back. And, and you can't blame yourself either because, again, when we know better, we do better. But if no one That's tells right. you, how are you supposed to know? Exactly, exactly. Thank you for that. So so after that, so you, you're going through the dual diagnosis program through the uh, care court system. It's called care court, did you say? Uh-huh, yeah. Um, and how long was that was that for? How long of a program? A year, a month? Three, three years. Three, three years. years. Wow. And did you have some of the same people in there the whole time? Did you connect with anyone and have that I did. I camaraderie did. Uh, that builds you up? It did. I was a little worried when I got in there that there were a bunch of teeny boppers. I was an older one. What am I going to have in common? But there were some who went into the program but, you know, we all had something in common. Right. Yeah, so that's sort of what I took. That's what I took from it. Georgia was very progressive, being that they had I all had these, no idea. Yeah. I had no idea. I'm very impressed with that. Not, not only the PTSD, but were you ever really able to deal with the grief of losing all those colleagues so close to you? And how long does that take to go through? And I don't think you ever fully recover, so I hate to use the word recovery, but right. where you get to a more normalized place, which I don't like the word normal either, but for lack right, of a better. I, understand. Um, I think I'm still dealing with the grief, and I think I think what you're getting at and how I look at it is it never goes away, but the intensity lessens. Yes. Um, so um, I think I'm still dealing with it because... Um, even when I start talking about my mother and my mother, uh, even at the end, even throughout the cancer, I never heard a complaint one time, never. And I, I hope, I hope that would be me at, at some time, uh, near my death, but just talking about it. And, um, you know, my colleagues, so I went through a lot of, we do a call every nine eleven, and I'd kind of do a check-in call. And guess what? Now I have the judge involved who oversaw, I got the treatment team and then former colleagues. And by and large, um, everyone seems to be doing okay. But one of the reasons I advocate is because, you know, I got some help, but there are hundreds of civilians who went Mm -hmm. through 9-11 who were walking around undiagnosed um, and turned to substance abuse. I met two folks here, a police officer who's... um, He's a good friend now, but he's kind of a macho guy. I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem. And on my 11, he cries. And then I met another guy. He said, oh, Kayla, uh, my ordeal wasn't as bad as yours. I was on the the 20th floor of the South Tower. And uh, I said, we all went through the same thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I asked him, I said, what have you done to, to help deal with the situation? 
so I'm, I'm expecting him to say maybe some treatment or something. He said, well, I started Toys of Tots. And so to see, you know, the eyes, to see the eyes and kind of the disconnect in comparing one's experience to another in times of 9-11, you know, he's one of the ones who's in the shadows totally forgotten about. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's kind of near and dear to my heart um, is trying to, to speak up for those folks. Yeah, you've become a, a voice for them. I, I think 9-11 seems so long ago, right? I work yeah. with, I work with I call them kids because they're kids to me who weren't even born yet when you think about that's it. That's scary, exactly. That's why I think everyone needs to go to that museum. Yeah, right. And And for our listeners, if you've never been, I... Could not recommend it enough. It was super emotional for me. Mm-hmm. I was on the job here in Chicago um, during 9-11, and we put our own protocols in place, but it it was super moving. And I went with a 9-11 survivor who gave me a tour through the whole museum, and um, sadly, they knew a lot of people, um, their mm-hmm. names that were on that wall. So... It, it was definitely a very memorable moment in, in my life, and I hope to get back there again. I agree. Everyone should see that. I mean, it's especially the kids that weren't born yet. I mean, it's just a part of our a fabric now. Right. Part of it. Very but, important. Yeah. But with when, when Julie was saying, <laughs> it was asking you about, you know, processing, which is, you know, an ongoing the people you lost, is there, you talk, you speak to everybody, you know, your closest or your certain, you know, relationships on 9-11. Are there other times during the year that they have still for people to connect? And was there um, any kind of organized grief groups, for lack of a better word, shortly after that? Um, did you, were, were you involved well, in any of that? let me tell you this. No. Um, Apparently, in the aftermath, they might have had some, but when I started looking for help, there were none. That's amazing. Um, I mean, as a World Trade Center, uh, Unbelievable. Net Health Network, the only support I've gotten for them is, you know, when I didn't have insurance to pay for psychiatrists and some medications, but that's it. So when I was in and out of job and all this other stuff, there was zero support, and, you know, it just... I don't think I'm special, but um, you've got, and not take anything away from the first responders or the families who lost loved ones, but you have a whole group of people out there, and it's like uh, the, the back has been turned on them, and um, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. It's a tragedy beyond description where so much support was and is needed. It makes me exactly. angry. Yeah. Yeah. But it seems that you have kind of taken on that role of being a, a voice for them and being an advocate for them and stepping up. And, you know, it it takes someone like you with the strength and wherewithal yeah, absolutely. to step up and say, we need to make change. These people are still suffering. It doesn't go away. We can't put a Band-Aid on it. That's right. And the spokespeople, again, not taking anything away, but like John Stewart and the, and the people who fought for the first responders, and mm-hmm. rightly so. There's no one for the civilians. Yeah. There's no voice. You know, there's no uniform. You know, some of the politicians only stand up to the to the uniform for the photo op, I'm sorry to say. Uh, 
I no, I yeah. be, I believe that a hundred. I believe that, and I'm. But I I just find it hard to, it's hard to accept that there just wasn't and isn't support. I mean, this, I just can't. I can't get over that. Most people are surprised, and people come up to me. Oh, are you nine eleven? Did you get a million dollars? I mean, <laughs> this is some of the stuff. I was, no, we didn't get a dime, but. I guess in some places there's a perception, um, but to me it's not it's not a it's not about money or anything like that. It's just yeah, just a little it. help for the people who need it. That's all. Right, and and money can't make the pain go away. So no, so not like it. when people throw money at at a problem because it doesn't resolve the problem. That's right. And being in the situation that you were in, did, did your drinking start? Right after that, were you drinking more? Were you, can you go after nine eleven? Into nine eleven, I was my eyes were on the prize. Um, if I had a beer or something, that was a rare thing because we were working all the time. Yeah. So it was only until all those years later. You said it was in Florida. When I really slowed, yeah, and, and when I slowed down, that's when everything started rising to the circle, including including the childhood sexual abuse. It's like that book that someone gave me, The Body Keeps the Score. Mm -hmm. It was like, boom, that was a pivotal moment when I read that book. So can you kind of describe that time in your life when you're, you know, now you you don't have a job and you've lost your home and um, your mother is dying? Like, what what was happening mentally with you? What were you drinking more? Were you sitting at home? Were you isolating yourself? I was yourself? sitting at home, and I think I was. Um, I didn't have any family in Florida. Most of the relationships I built were colleagues at work, so I'm sitting there alone, but thank goodness for my dog. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I just felt like a total failure, and I felt very hopeless. To go from the peak jobs and to be without a job was very depressing. And I was wondering what, what did I do wrong? Mm-hmm. Um, and how could I fall so far? And yeah. so that's kind of was my thinking. And then why is the world crumbling with my mother and my brother? Um, and that's when I started kind of questioning God to be candid with you. Um, to me today, I know there's something up there. I'm, my God is my nature mm-hmm. when I'm out mm-hmm. of the farm, when I'm with the horses but yeah, I told myself I was never going to question why I was alive, and I was never going to question God. But all these years later, I found myself doing exactly that. Now I don't think about that now. You know, I go forward. I got to go forward. But you know, it's in your life. You just kind of stand back, stand back, and contemplate why. And sometimes there's just no questions. Wait, there's no answers. I guess. You're such a remarkably strong human being. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I don't think I've ever such a story with this resilience. I mean, it's amazing. It's really, you're really something else. Um, Thank you. When you, when you were getting this help, sort of like the second DUI, you're thrown into the court system. Thank God they have this surprisingly amazing program that is putting you back on the map. Did you start as well to seek help getting a therapist on the, I mean, like after that, and, and I, to ask you a personal question, do you see a, pr- sure. a therapist now? Did that set Absolutely. you on? Did that set you on the course of I need support, medication therapy? Absolutely, all of that plus um, plus uh, equine therapy oh. because of PTSD, my my brain tends to race, and so when I go out to the farm, I call it Peaceville, 
And I thought I was just going to ride a horse, but in reality, the bonds with the horse, they can sense something is wrong. The first time I went there, this mare, who I've learned since is a diva, I'm not exactly paying attention. I'm looking around. She walks right up to me. She puts her head right on my shoulder, and all of a sudden, oh. here comes all this um, that's on my shoulder is kind of released, and I'm telling myself, yeah. nobody's going to believe me. Hi, <laughs> uh, buddy. Yeah. I always hear such um, great things about equine therapy, but I never heard any descriptive, I suppose I never asked either, but I never heard the descriptive of what exactly happens. So... The horse senses that you're feeling not good, comes over to put put their head on your shoulders, and then what else does that entail? What else does equine therapy offer? Basically, it's kind of walking and talking with the horse. Are you ever on the horse? And a therapist. No, at some point I will. Oh, interesting. But um, you're walking and talking through all your feelings. And um, I wish we could bottle this for everyone in the world to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but something about the horse that's very comforting. Um, different than the relationship with the dog, because when you run home, the dog's happy to see you. Everything is on the horse's terms. Right. So that's interesting. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm still learning about it. Um, I do, it, the form I go to is Special Equestrians of Georgia. I do their social media. So I always... I take photos and stuff like that for social media, but I make all these little videos, kind of give the characters mm-hmm. names and stuff. So the creativity, I found that again. Oh, um, I and that. I take tons of pictures. When I was started to take these mindfulness classes, first time I went there, a therapist says, pick something out of this book. And of course, Kayla, uh, I just jumped to, what is this? What's the purpose I'm thinking to myself? I pull out this book and all of a sudden she hands me some colors. <laughs> You know, some of the Crayolas. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at her like, I'm 55 years old. Do you think I'm going to be doing that? <laughs> I did it. But what I found out when I went to the farm, that became my mindfulness. I would take so many, and I would just use an iPhone, take tons and tons and tons of pictures. And then with the filters, that's where it comes to life. I, the challenge is to try to take something that's not really a good picture and they use the colors to turn it into something better. Or let's see, I wanted to do something of a cross for the World Trade Center um, around the anniversary. I kept looking for something somewhere for a cross, and I found it on one of the fences. So sometimes I'm looking for things, and sometimes I'm just snapping photos, and then then when you take a look at it, oh, this could be this, this could be this. So um, And that it's got, gets my full attention, keeps me in the present. God, what a great concept. It really is. I, I Your description takes my breath away. That mm-hmm. I, You can almost feel it listening to what you're saying. Yeah. I, I have a question for you. When you first sure. were thrown into this program because of your second DUI, how long did it take you to accept it? And, you know, I, I mean, sitting there thinking, I would be like, I don't belong here. Why am I here? How long do I have to do this for, right? Did you go in with right. resistance or did you like, okay, I'm I'm here and I'm going to take everything you give me? Yeah, I was resigned to go to any length to get better. And I guess what I wanted to tell you before is when I first went in there, I felt a little bit like an oddball because people would come up to me and, um, oh, you're a 9-11? 
Uh-huh. And I didn't know if people could relate to me. So I tried to downplay the whole thing, at least in the group. I was going to ask you. Um, but yeah, I wanted to do in and every, everything I could. I figured, you know, I'm not a youngster, you know, seize, seize the day. And so I actually tried EMDR at one point. I was going to ask you that too. Um, well, it didn't really work for me. And I think it might have just been a, a, an issue with the, um, with the therapist because she was very militant. Oh. We'd go a couple of weeks, I'd walk out of the session, you know, in a fog, and the next week I'd say, can we process this? It's too much. She would say, no, we're going to do it again. No, we're going to do it again. And um, actually, I told my treatment team at the court and everything, the judge t- stepped in to me privately, and she ordered me to stop EMDR. That doesn't, that doesn't mean I would I wouldn't do it again. I mm-hmm. definitely would. But it's a lesson. It's a lesson people. though to be matched up with someone who can relate to you. I mean, that's exactly. like you said. It was probably and don't the... laugh. Don't laugh. Here in Georgia, <laughs> I was looking for someone who accepted United Health who had that in Georgia. So I'm like looking around, looking around. All of a sudden, I see Boston University. Okay, she's a Yankee. You know what I mean? <laughs> so the Nazis, I can identify with her. Hey, whatever, whatever, whatever right, works. Whatever works. Exactly. So, no, it was, a, it was a valuable lesson. It was a valuable, but I didn't know anyone in Georgia. So we live and learn, as they say. Absolutely. And, um, quite, what is, uh, in your bio, you refer to the Connection Forsyth Recovery Program. And are you still, are you program director of that? currently or I am what what is um, that recovery program first of all let me back up a little bit so when I talked about the rise and fall mm-hmm. because the the schedule dealing with all the meetings and treatment and the accountability court I'm thinking who's going to hire me my background is in PR crisis communications and of course someone's not going to want to hire somebody to talk to the news media <laughs> and so the job I got Subway. I made sandwiches <laughs> for three years, and I got to say, not the best sandwiches to work um, to work on myself. And it was very humbling. And the, the owners, they were just so supportive um, throughout that. But um, here's what happened: so COVID hits, and one of the things I learned about PTSD: if I don't stay active. There's going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. Either, you know, getting the jitters, you know, the stuff mm-hmm. going on in the world and everything. And so I started volunteering. It's, it's a recovery community organization. I think there are 40 in the state of Georgia. It's a place. It's a safe place for people in recovery to come. Now we have peer coaching. That's, that's what we all do here. We're all in recovery here. We have, I think, 13 meetings, multiple pathways to recovery. And is this and recovery is this recovery of substance abuse or addiction. anything, addiction, I'm saying, anything. or anything? Anything. anything have, uh, even we, if you don't have addiction issues? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. We, we have somebody coming. Uh, well, I guess it's gambling is that, but we have mm-hmm. parents who don't understand their kids, smart family and friends. We got wow. another one for the younger. So we're trying to offer as many options as we can. We have the smart meetings, we have uh, NA, we have AA, and we have something called Dharma through the Buddhist meditation. That's kind of the fastest growing group here. Mm. So um, what is so that? that's why I started volunteering. Um, it's a, it has something to do with meditation. Okay. You go outside, you put your yoga mat. Mm-hmm. That stuff didn't work for me, the visualizing mm-hmm. and all that stuff, but it works for a lot of people. 
Um, but so I'm volunteering here in the middle of COVID. And this was one of the first places in Georgia to start the Zoom meeting. So they really got a jump on it. And so just coordinating hundreds of meetings a week. And so that's what I did. And so towards the end of the year, I also got news coverage too, because it was important uh, for the news media to know that meetings were going on and, and sobriety was was in the in limbo because of the lack of connection. So I did some of that type of stuff. But next thing you know, they offered me a job. I would have never thought. I don't doubt it. Uh, no, me neither. <laughs> not in a million years. And so, um, so I got the certification from the, the state of Georgia, CPS, AD for addictive disorder. I'm going to be doing the mental health one. Just got it certified by um, the Respect Institute. The, the NAMI, as you said, in our own voice. I'm trying to be a sponge mm-hmm. and to, to soak up as much as I can. The other thing, it's substance abuse here, which is as per the Georgia Council on Substance Abuse, but because the underlying conditions of most of the people, whether we go into the jail and t- teach relapse prevention or folks walking off the street, there's so much untreated mental health. Mm-hmm. And so... I'm building a program for mental health, and that's um, with the ACEs, the science of addiction, and bringing all the family members in because they don't necessarily know how to talk to each other. My dad, when I got my second DUI, was, hey, you ruined your life. You ruined your life. Why would you do that? Mm -hmm. My sponsor said, because he's not not an addiction. He wouldn't know that. And so... um, you're def- I don't know what that. You are you're, one I'm smart woman. <laughs> you're and you're you're so oh, right the about family, that. the family's in recovery. The family's in recovery. So when it affects one, it affects mm-hmm. the entire family. Yep. So we're trying to bring. That's what I'm focusing on. Is Virginia I'm looking Gap. at some. Yeah, exactly. With with the NAMI and the in in the stigma, mm-hmm. we've done some of that equine therapy. We've done the temperaments, Terrific. and I'm looking for evidence based programs to help. I mean, we have. Um, parenting the nurturing way and things like that for people in court, but what can we get the parents and kids to do? And I'm planning a lot of social activities too, because you don't have to um, have a substance abuse problem uh, in, in the family. If you've got someone, you can bring your sister, you can bring whatever, because we have to live in the real world. Mm-hmm. So those are atop my list. This sounds incredible. Yeah, you really, um, you have really come a long way. And what an example you are to other people mm. out there because although you've lived through such a horrific event, I feel like when people go through trauma, whatever trauma it is, it they all share the same relation in that. You know, because trauma... Thank you, because I tell people trauma, trauma is trauma. Yep. Pain is pain is pain. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if it was 9-11 or... Or the shootings. Yeah, I mean, you have families that are absolutely. looting loved ones, kids, you know, the recent horrible news and these yeah. mass shootings. I feel like there are so many people trying to uh, start their journey of recovery in some way, shape, or form that you're someone who just has this Gift. roof that that builds for a little bit of everything, and you sure know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I you've given that mentors. <laughs> you've given that voice to those that are voiceless, and you've you are definitely representing the families that you have lost. Thank you. Um, I'd like to say a couple of things, if that's okay. Sure. Okay. 
what I encourage people to do if they want to help, how can I help? Mm-hmm. Tell your story publicly. Tell your story publicly because we're not less than anyone else because we have a disease. We pay taxes. We give back to the community and, and we get well. We get well. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's the way to approach ending the stigma. That you know, the thought that we don't pay taxes, we live under a bridge, we're a threat <laughs> we're a threat physically to someone, that's just so misinformed and that's another reason why I wanna be as forceful as I can and encourage other people to use their own voices. You that's are definitely great advice. Doing that. Mm-hmm. I hope our listeners are really Tuning in for, you know, taking that seriously. I hearing think. that message. And there's nothing like hearing someone's story. You learn so much. Today, hearing your story, I can't even imagine how many people will walk away from listening to this episode of Behind Our Door feeling different than before they listened. This was just an unbelievable story and... Of tragedy ex- into... Yeah, an example survival of... into... Your yeah. example... Your example of strength is just is just so inspiring. Well, thank you. you thank you for this this public service that you provide. Um, you never know who's going to hear this for right. the first time, or someone can take it and spread what they've learned. It's it's like an echo chamber. Mm-hmm. If each one of us do our part, it's going to help. It's going to help. Agreed. Everybody Agreed. needs to do a little bit of yeah. it. <clears throat> so we can spread the word further. Right. Exactly. We, well, th- we cannot thank you enough for, for coming on our show and, and being so candid and sharing your personal story and the tragedy that you've been through and how you've survived. Um, gosh, I'm, I'm humbled by you being here with us, and you gave me a lot of goosebumps and almost made me cry. But um, thank you for that. Thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you so much, Kayla. This was really extra special. We've been doing this for many months, and this this whole uh, story of yours and everything you're doing really stops you right in your tracks. So thank you so much. Thank you. I'm glad we met. Yes, me too. We'll keep in touch. Take good care. Okay. Bye-bye. Me too. Bye-bye. Wow. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We welcome your input. To contact us or any of our guests, please email us at behindourdoor at mail.com. That's behindourdoor at mail.com. And please don't forget to like and share our podcast. Um, Leave us a rating. Tell us how we're doing. We really want your feedback. It's important to us. We are so thankful that you are here and listening to us. If you or someone you know is in crisis struggling with mental illness, you can call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or the NAMI Helpline at 1-800-950-6264. Until next time, please join us for another conversation behind our door. Thanks for listening.